Radio Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian based national not for profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood, and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities, and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. My name is Justin Gange and he's a plumber, a supermodel and a daggy dad joke specialist. He's a Kiwi though, he lives in Brisbane in Australia. He was born in Auckland, New Zealand, landing on the shores of Australia as a young and impressionable 17 year old. He's a musician, a tireless suicide prevention champion, a great man of faith and a husband to Marnie with two wonderful daughters. You might have seen him at the football folks because he's the Brisbane Broncos mascot. This guy is fair income and he tells it the way it is. He's simply a great mate to a lot of people and he's an inspiration. Welcome again to Roses Radio and today we've got the opportunity to sit down with Justin Gage and to hear Justin's story. Pleasure to have you with us today Justin, thanks for making some time mate. Thank you for having us. No problem. So let's start by going back to childhood. Uh, you grew up in New Zealand, tell me a little bit about uh, some of your insights in growing up in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, look, I, I was very fortunate, I had a great, great um, time growing up in New Zealand. Uh, Grew up in the 70s, and so the 70s was always always fun, you know, your uh, very little uh, gadgets and things to be occupied with. My, my dad was one of those sort of entertaining blokes that would uh, 
um, dig a hole, throw a hangi down, invite the whole street over, and we'd be singing and drinking and smoking and doing all sorts of things till all hours of the morning. And used to love those uh, those, those experiences that my dad would um, my dad would uh, put on. And um, yeah, always wanted to be like my dad, you know, make people smile through song and um, good times. So, an entertainer as a child? Yeah. Look, I. Um, from from very early age, probably you know, five or six, all I wanted to do was get up on stage and uh, make people uh, smile through my song, and um, did that at many family barbecues, and uh, yeah, that was what I pestered my mum and dad about doing. So there's a real sense of community. I'm, I'm assuming that it was that sense of community came with, uh, you know, being uh, brought up by uh, by the community to a large degree, rather than you know just being reliant on mum and dad to bring you up. Was there a sense of that? As oh, part of your upbringing? Absolutely. I mean, everyone knew everyone in our neighbourhood. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'd go down to the dam and um, throw stones and build bridges and do all those sort of crazy things and, you know, come back when dinner time was ready. And everyone knew, you know, everyone knew um, who who was with what and where. And, and um, yeah, it was a pretty cool time. And music was a big part of your upbringing. So you talk about your, uh, your dad and, and your community being very musical focused. You were musically focused as well you you learnt the guitar or you learnt particular instruments or self-taught or yeah look I, I had um, lessons as a kid um, singing lessons a um, bit of guitar lessons I'm I probably not my forte but I certainly can um, hammer out a tune when I want to um, and uh, yeah I my, my first singing competition I think was on stage in a shopping centre when I was um, seven or eight so um, yeah from a very early age it, it played a, an important role in my life and it's continued to be an important part of your life, hasn't it? So how has music shaped um, you as an individual? You've, uh, you've been very committed to your music. You still are committed to your music. I think you've got a little song that we might touch on just a little <laughs> bit later on that has, has become a little bit famous and synonymous with you. But, you know, what is music for you now? Yeah, look, music's, um, it, 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 it's also a way of escape for, for me. Um, I, I sang in pubs and clubs and theatre and all that as a as a young teenager um, it, it certainly led me down a um, an interesting road in regards to the party scene that was involved um, with that and, um, and probably probably did a little bit of damage um, in regards to my mental health um, but it certainly still plays a part and it's a place where I go to escape when things are tough even today. And in fact is it true that you came to Australia because of music that was the thing that Got yeah. you out of New Zealand and across to uh, across the ditch. Yeah, across the Dutch, as we say back then. Um, yeah, absolutely. My cousin was in a band over here. Um, the band was going well until I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> um, and look, I probably had more tickets on myself than um, were warranted, and and so I was kind of stuck here, uh, um, not having worked a day in my life, sort of thing. So, going back to your teenage years, so uh, yeah, growing up in New Zealand before you headed across here, and I can't believe you came across here at 17 years of age. I mean, uh, you know, what an adventure that must have been for a 17-year-old. But your teenage years were, they seemed like they were a little bit tough. You were in and out of, um, you know, different, um, uh, you know, your hospital a couple of times, yep. and, and there were some psychiatric things that you were working through. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, look, I... I um I, I was doing it tough. I, exhaustion played a big part. Um, I had a nervous breakdown at the age of 15, um, and that was purely because of all the work that I was doing in the music industry. Um, and then, like most teenagers, having battles with um, relationships and perceptions of okay. relationships, and, and so that led to several suicide attempts um, by the time I was um, 16. 
and um, and then yeah, f- finally led down the road where um, I, um, because of my alcoholism, um, I had rehab for a, a few months, and so um, all of those things combined sort of taught me a lot about the mental health system in New Zealand. Were you isolated? Did you feel isolated as a teenager going through this? Isolation uh, is, is an interesting word. Yeah. I, I sang at school when it wasn't popular. You know, like these days, yeah. it's popular. Everyone wants to be a star. But I sang when you got teased for being different, and okay. and so a certain amount of isolation through um, bullying and things like that at, um, at school, um, and then isolation. Um, I, I isolated myself a lot uh, towards my latter teenage years in New Zealand, um, where I would just stay in my room and drink and. Um, um, be in be in my own space, um, so definitely isolation is a big word for me growing up. Um, I can't remember having super duper friends that I would hang out with. Um, I certainly had friends, and each show you did, you develop friendships, but um, then you move on to the next show and it all start again. You mentioned that you had a couple of attempts at around fifteen years of age. Can you take us back to that? What, what were you thinking at the time? Can you remember? I mean, you're 15. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I can. I can remember them. I can remember each attempt. I can remember exactly what I did. Um, um, one, the, the very first one was very um, spontaneous. Very, the first two were very spontaneous. Um, and uh, I was in dark places, but I was in an irrational sense of... Um, thinking that uh, the particular relationship that had just broken up was the, the, the be-all and end-all, and, um, and, and that's where I was. I was very much a, a teenager in love, and, um, and the world came out of it uh, when, when that broke up. Um, so the, 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 the last suicide attempt in Australia, sorry, in New Zealand, was a, um, one where I was very unwell. Was creating religions. I was um, doing writing enchantments, and um, I, I was certainly in a really bad, bad space. And I believe that if my mum was sick, and so I got, I, I, I worked myself up to the belief that if I took my life, that would um, fix her up with her health. And um, and so that was certainly the the first um, real serious decline in my mental health. Um, in regards to, um, yeah, not not what we would uh, picture as being a logical seventeen-year-old uh, <laughs> or sixteen-year-old as I was, so that was um, that was a really tough one. So back then, so we're talking about the eighties, uh, yeah. thereabouts. Uh, back then, what was the way that suicide for a sixteen-year-old was dealt with by uh, by the community or uh, by the institutions that? were involved in helping and supporting young people? Wow, it's very taboo. It's my mum and dad, the first couple of attempts were, you know, oh, he's just keep him home from school, he's just, geez, he's sick at the moment, so there was, you, know, you wouldn't talk about it. Um, yeah, certainly um, going into those hospitals and um, they didn't even have a facility for teenagers, so I ended up... Um, in um, wards with all um, geriatric wards and things like that, so it's um, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't as wasn't was what it is today. Um, that's for sure, where it's um, openly talked about and um, less of a taboo subject. And can you remember what you did to pull yourself back from 
uh, from that and to create, um, I guess, a degree of normality um, back in your life? Yeah. Um, look, it took, um, it took a letter from my cousin. Um, my cousin was a, a muser. He was travelling the States at the time with a Christian band. And um, he said, look, you know, um, you don't have to go through life alone. Um, and like most, um, I, I showed it to everyone in the ward. I was in hospital at the time. We all mocked him and, and did what we did. But um, uh, when I left the ward and got home, I actually, um, I, I sorted it out. I sought out those, those answers and I started to attend a little Baptist church in the corner there where maybe about 15 people attended. But... Um, it was, it was quite enough that, um, uh, yeah, I could decide for myself. And, um, and it's certain, I, I point that as a, a change around for me. What did it give you a sense of? Um, it gave me a sense of self-worth, and I think that's what was lacking as a teenager. I, although I was doing all these amazing things and all that, I, there was a tremendous lack of self-worth. And um, it, it gave me hope that the emptiness that I had felt... Um, through the period of my alcoholism and attempts and all that and um, that that emptiness could be filled by something other than sex or drink or drugs or whatever and um, and and yeah there was a tangible sense of hope within my life when I started to read the Bible and, and um, talk to the pastor a bit more about it 17 you decide to head across to Australia Yep. Uh, seeking a life of rock and roll stardom, uh, playing in a band up and down the East Coast, I, I understand. Um, tell me about your early years um, over here in Australia. Yeah, the rock and roll thing didn't last more than a week or two. Mate. <laughs> it was, I, I, I came over and, um, and quite honestly, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, the the band. I, I remember the first gig in Diamonds down the Gold Coast. Um, we played two songs and then the band left and left me to sing one In Excess song. And in the middle of my In Excess song, the manager came up and turned the lights up, turned the power off, and I thought, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> that was kind of a sign to you that, uh, that maybe this was going to be a short-lived career. Yeah, I wish they could have turned it off while the rest of the band was on stage, but, you know... It was me. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, but lots of things have, have happened for you since you made that decision to come across to Australia at 17. Uh, your family are uh, probably the most important, apart from your faith, your family are probably the most important thing in your life. And, for sure. Um, when you got across here, you um, were privileged to meet your wife, your partner, your yep. soulmate. Yep. Uh, tell us about uh, meeting Marnie and, and uh, tell us about your family. Oh, look, um, Marnie is uh, incredible. It, it, we, we got married in 1994, um, uh, 22 years ago, or depends when you're listening to this, so 1994. Um, she, she was just, um, we, we met at um, church. She was a dancer. Um, I was obviously still a singer, but um, not as good as I thought. <laughs> um, and um, she would just light the room up, mate. With her, 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 when she danced, she just came alive. Um, and even, you know, even as recently as doing Kokoda, they said even though Marnie was doing it tough, you wouldn't see her without a smile on her face. And it's the sort of smile that really, just like 
people are drawn to. Her eyes would sparkle when she danced. She was in her element when she was dancing, and um, and uh, she's yeah, she's my world. And, and look, uh, you know, I've got to be honest. I haven't been the greatest <laughs> greatest role model as far as um, husbands go, but um, you know, she's she's a great believer in the fine print, and um, you know, through some tough times and um, some great times. Um, we, we're still we're still going hard at it and having an adventure after adventure because nothing's ever dealt with me apparently. <laughs> yeah, something amazing about um, about that, isn't there? You know, uh, and I assume that you know she knew your history. She uh, you would have been very open about uh, uh, where you'd come from and, and what some of the drivers uh, were of that. So she went into that relationship eyes wide open. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's been a bit of a roller coaster ride for her. Yeah. Uh, since, uh, and particularly as we get to uh, talking about um, uh, the suicide attempt um, of more recent times. And um, two beautiful girls, tell us about those. Yeah, look, for, for about five years um, we, we tried to have kids. Uh, so we lost one early in um, oh, 2000, I think it was, and um, that, that was hard yakka. Um, but uh, after um, losing that bub, uh, we tried numerous ways, you know, there was um, the baby maker and, you know, the time method and ICSI and all these sort of different methods. But we ended up going through the IVF model and um, uh, my beautiful daughter, Tegan, um, 2005 she was born and my um, little chip off the old block, Chelsea, is <laughs> born in 2008. So, yeah, oh, bless me. It kind of segues nicely into, um, I think, a, a whole series of events that were happening for you at around about that period of time, give or take. So I'll ask you to kind of give us a, a bit of a sense. Um, just reading through, you know, some of the story in, in our previous discussions, there was, um, you know, trying to have uh, children uh, over that period of time and all the different um, challenges that were associated with that. Then there's, uh, you turned your hand to running a, a plumbing business um, and that plumbing business uh, eventually wasn't quite as successful. Yeah, look, as uh, you thought it would be. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm a sort of like that. I, I really struggle to, um, happy to give what I can give, but really struggle to pass on invoices and things like that. And those are the kind of things that you need to do to run a successful business. So, Jelly Belly Plumbing um, nosedived pretty quickly, and um, we were, we we survived on delivering pamphlets, um, paying off a mortgage on delivering pamphlets, and. Um, I remember combing the streets for aluminium cans and things like that back in 2004. We had Tegan in the stroller delivering pamphlets in 2005, but um, I was lucky enough to cross paths with my old boss in Queensland Rail and asked if I'd be interested in coming back. So there's a bit happening at the time. You know, I think you dabbled in uh, politics. You also um, uh, had a successful stint on uh, was Australia's Got Talent. Correct, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things happening for you. I think your grandmother passed away at the, around about that time as well. There was a real sort of sense of a cumulative build-up of pressure and stress. Is that what it was like for you at the time? Yeah, look, it's, um, it's certainly a huge... Um, I, I was certainly in a position where I thought I could do anything. I felt almost Superman in my... I felt like I could um, do anything, try anything, and so, you know, doing the politics, doing the Australia's Got Talent, um, it just seemed to be what I needed to do. I was doing quite well at work too, it was middle level management, and um, 
and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, uh, come the end of 2012, um, after losing my nan um, in 2013, but um, 2012, it was it was pretty... I, I was exhausted, I was spent. And as you say, the accumulative effect of having all of those things going on um, and, and then the very real potential of losing my job um, created a real downward spiral um, in my in my headspace and my thinking. Can you tell us more about that downward spiral? Uh, apart from the physical side of things, what other symptoms were there that you were, I guess, imploding to a degree? There, there was just too much happening for you. Yeah. Look. It, the word failure is the one thing that booms, flashes like a light bulb in my head, you know. Um, so all, all of a sudden the, my mindset was that of instead of being, you know, invincible, it was I failed at politics, I failed at Australia's Got Talent, although I got through the semi-finals, I failed essentially. Um, I was failing at work and pretty soon losing my job would mean that I'd be a failure with my family and my friends. And... and that pressure that um, that was in my head kind of um, skewed my logic, my way of thinking, and so it was like a instead of having been the ability to stand back and say, "Well, okay, you you know you can reframe that, and it's all good. It's all the really positive things." Um, I was um, yeah reframing it towards the negative, and um, and as such, I combine that with your physical factors of being exhausted it was almost like I, I'm tired I've had enough I don't want to be here anymore I can't fail anymore um, and so that really was the beginning of the end as far as I was concerned you did seek um, medical help for it yep and um, you went through the right channels with that I think you were diagnosed yes. with a mental illness and you were given medication, but I think part of your story is that you decided not to take that. Do you think that that had an impact on your ability to cope with all of this stress? Good question. Um, so yes, back in 2012, I, I, I self-admitted to the um, to my local hospital, and they diagnosed me with bipolar type two. Um, treated me with a medication known as lithium, had some really negative effects with me, um, weight gain, constipation, um, just lack of um, energy, and I thrived on energy, I thrive on energy today, I, um, I need things to be going to, to excite me, and, um, and that took that away from me, and so um, I, in, in my mind's eye I figured if that's got to be my life going forward then I don't want that. And so I became a doctor overnight, took myself off the, the meds, went back to work and played the game. Uh, you know, everything's okay when it wasn't. Um, but I didn't want the side effects of what, what that medication and what those labels um, would have on my life. And so I chose to try and tough it out. Would you advise someone to do that? <laughs> uh, there's another bad bad uh, error of judgment on my behalf then um, look do you know what what I've learned from that is that I should have challenged I, I, and I mean don't don't be satisfied because I, I got little to no support from um, mental health after I took myself out of the equation 
um, challenge that. If, if, if you're seeing someone um, who's a caseworker or a psychologist and, and you don't fit, find someone else. That's what we do with everything else. If we don't like Woolworths, we go to Aldi. If we don't like Aldi, we go to Coles. You know, so challenge. Um, challenge the medication. You know, tell the doctors, you know, I don't like the side effects. There's got to be something new. And there was. But I didn't challenge it. I just, I, I, I made the decisions myself. They were poor decisions and they had dramatic consequences later on in the, the following year. What did playing the game look like? at work playing the game was all about you know smiling when you're supposed to smile being firm and hard when you're supposed to smile away voice smile away you know just like um doing it tough you know put that mask on that's that's what i did as a um, as a mascot <laughs> i would put that mask on and um say everything's all right and deep down it wasn't so no one would have known oh look i'm I'm pretty transparent, so they probably would have, uh, but they're probably all too scared to, <laughs> scared to ask me because um, they'd asked before and it didn't end well. Um, so um, my my um, you know my forty five year old version would have gone back and said you you need to have asked for help or hope that someone would have stood up and asked me if I was doing okay. You'd certainly advise people to do that. Yeah, I, I think every time someone asked me that question, it made it really hard for me because I got the understanding that people cared about me. And so that having that understanding that people cared about me, it meant that, you know, I've, I've got to do something, you know, to hold on. Um, so, yeah, I, I encourage people to ask that question, even if you're not getting the desired result. So there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. How was that affecting family life? So were you playing the game in your you playing the game in your work life? Were you playing the game in your spiritual life? Were you playing the game in your family life, in your social life as well? Yeah, a absolutely. Um, I would I would withdraw. I um, my spiritual life wasn't as I I'd focus so much on myself at, at, during that time. Um, you become very um, self-absorbed, you know, that's whether that's politics, whether that's show business or, or whatever. Self-absorbed was all about me and so um, it became all about me and um, having that, um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't get involved with my, uh, my I'd turn up to church and all that, but, um, you know, thoughts were well and truly about me <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's not what... Um, my faith's about it's it's not not about me at all um, but that's where I was at that point in time certainly my family suffered you know the kids would experience cranky dad uh, moody dad oh we better stay away from dad because he's 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 not flash tonight so my kids would avoid me and um, you know there was always um, uh, good good and tough times with my wife and um, and so yeah it was a real challenging time for the whole family and for my faith and, and for everything. I had the blinkers on. It's all about me. What's the What's the hardest part about wearing that mask? It's exhausting. Yeah. You you, uh, you know, I, I've spent forty odd years up to that point trying to be, you know, thinking I'm Elvis or you know, trying to be something that I'm not, and and it's exhausting. And then when you have to start lying to cover up, 
how you're truly feeling, um, you've got to remember those lies and then remember the, the other lies after that. And um, at the end of the day, you become a liar to yourself. And, um, and it's, yeah, when you get the answer of thinking, oh, let's just take my life and be done with it um, because I'm exhausted of playing this game. So let's explore that um, a little bit more. Um, do you find it ironic that the very thing that is most valuable to you, which is your family, was the very driver behind you making the decision that you did to make another attempt on your life? Yeah, look, and I wonder whether I use that as a justification, <laughs> um, okay. if, if I'm quite transparent. I, um, but <clears throat> it's, it's, it's interesting because I was so exhausted um, and uh, the potential of you know, being made redundant. I wonder um, if I was so tired that I couldn't physically, I didn't physically want to try anymore to reinvent myself by getting a new job. And, and, and so it seemed um, the easiest way out would be to, you know, um, activate my life insurance so that my family would be, you know, taken care of. Um, they didn't have to put up with Cranky Dad. They didn't have to put up with Up and Down Justin. They didn't have to put up with that person that you weren't sure whether he was going to go for Australia's Got Talent or down the toilet, you know. It was... Um, um, it was about I'd had enough um, but I, I did love them there, there's no uh, and I still do <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question because I look back and I think flip how could I do that how could I do that I really don't get how I could do that and so the only thing that I can think of is that I was trying to justify my my exhaustion, my mental health, I was trying to justify that um, by doing what I did and my logic was so skewed and I look back and I, I just can't understand um, why I did that and I don't have that answer. Um, the, um, we'll go to, uh, to have a chat now about what happened in the lead up uh, to that day. Hmm. Uh, so, can you describe uh, what you were thinking uh, and feeling in the lead up to that? And then you, you kind of describe a, a kind of what I, I think you, you say a couple of miracles occurred, which are really important and defining in terms of your story. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I'd made it made up my mind that um, 2013 in May 2013 that that's the action that I would take. And being the bloke that was, I paid all the bills in the family and everything like that. So I planned for two months um, to do what I was going to do. And so I planned, I, I, I wrote up a spreadsheet um, for my um, wife of what bill came out of what account on what day, um, just so that, you know, she wouldn't have to um, worry about those sort of things. I filled out all the paperwork in regards to um, funerals and wills and um Q super death certificates and all those sort of um, different uh, things that I didn't want my family to have to do. Did Marnie um, have any sense that you were doing this? No. Or was this all very much under the radar? Very much under the radar. Look, it was... Um, I even finished songs. I finished books. Um, I, I, I was fortunate enough to see my family one more time in New Zealand. 
Um, so I, was t- I had my little um, tech list. I'm a tech list guy. <laughs> and um, had all the things that I wanted to do. That final week, I cleaned my, my um, desk out. I didn't even take a, take a company pen. <laughs> I cleaned it out, left everything behind, um, and, uh, and then took three sick days before... Um, because I know you need a, de- a sick certificate if you go over three days. So, it's quite ironic, really. I've, anyway, um, it, uh, so I took took three days off, and, um, and 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 I had it all planned out right to the nth degree. But the morning that I woke up, it was the, um, uh, the 1st of August, 2013, I changed the place where I wanted to go. And... This has always played in the back of no matter how many times I share my story, this plays in the back of my mind. I, I hear of other people that have jumped from bridges and things like that, and they say the first thing that they they experience when they leave the safety of the bridge is regret. And and so I wonder for myself if that morning waking up and wanting to experience one last sunrise in the, my most favourite place of the earth, being Kira Beach. I wonder if that was my my saving my saving grace. That was my inner voice saying, "No, you don't want to do this." Um, but anyway, I the first I, I woke up, I went down to Kira, which is about an hour south of where we are. I didn't want my family to find me. I um, I had over two months. I had accumulated all the medication that I needed to do what I needed to do. Um, that was seeing so many different doctors and things <laughs> to. Um, to tell them a story or a fake story, and um, and and then I went down. I did what I did, and um, I sent an email to my wife, my boss, and to a friend of ours, and um, and then that was it. I faded it just as just as I was going into unconsciousness. That was it. Um, my boss got the email. Um, he's he's an army man, and so he said first thing he did called Marnie. He says we need to call the police. Get them onto this. You know, ASAP. <laughs> and, um, but Marnie, she said, no, she had a gut instinct. She said, I just want to try one place, this one place. And um, she jumped in the car with our friend and um, went down to Kira. First car park they pulled into, there's, there was my car. Um, miracle number one, as you said. Um, they tried getting me out of the, out of the car, but, um, you know, super, super model good looks, but... Um, heavy bones I feel um, so these two ladies trying to get me out of the car um, couldn't do it um, car pulled in beside him big Polynesian boy was a nurse at uh, mental health hospital um, pulled me out like a rag doll threw me on the ground my wife applied CPR by slapping me across the face a few times and they got a moan out of me so miracle number two they got to me in time um, Ambos pull up um, they say usually when someone doesn't want to be found they don't be, they don't get found um, so miracle number three in my opinion and um, and then I wake up and um, back in that same hospital that I was a year before um, feeling angry um, feeling like a failure huge failure not only were things tough before I did what I did but now I just made them what seemingly insurmountable and um, I was I was stuck so the days following, you spent a fair bit of time in hospital, yeah, and then in rehabilitation, or yeah. Look, um, I was in there for a week or so. Um, 
I, as, as you said, that feeling of failure is just all, all encompassing. And um, I, I started getting messages um, from mates. I could work from the railways. I probably haven't touched this for close to 20 years. So I built up some amazing friendships. Um, but I honestly didn't think that um, what I what I did would have any effect, any profound effect on any of my mates. You know, we were just big, woofy railway workers. <laughs> um, but the amount of support and love um, that I got from blokes that don't ordinarily show that sort of thing um, was very overwhelming. It surprised you? It, it did. It did. You know, they, they say suicide's like a hand grenade. You, you, you know, the explosion just doesn't affect you, the core people around you. The shrapnel spreads far and wide, and I didn't realise how far and wide that shrapnel spread. Um, I, I was just overcome and, and just started talking to some of these guys. Um, got me realising that, hey, we're, we're kind of all in the same boat. We're all doing it tough, and I, for different, every story's unique. You know, I, my story's unique. The, the, your story's unique, every single story's unique, and the more that I started talking with people about my story, the more they would open up about their story, and um, realising that, well, we've been talking about the footy for so many years that we hadn't really grasped onto something important like someone close to the edge, and um, and so that really, I got given a second chance that day there on the, the 1st of um, August 2013. I really did, you know, there's two and a half thousand Aussies that don't get that second chance every single year. Um, two and a half thousand communities, two and a half thousand families um, worse off because they don't have that loved one in their life. But I got a second chance and the more I started talking, the more I realised I've got to do something with the second chance. I've got to get my story out there, I've got to get people talking. Because when we talk, we actually open up, when we talk about things that matter, you know, we talk about being a fair dinkum Aussie. We talk about, you know, you've got to be tough and hard and all that. Well, in my opinion, it's tougher to actually say how you're feeling. It's tougher to say how you're feeling than it is to bottle it up. Because bottling it up is just crap and it does you no good. You're, you talk about recovery yep. as being a, not only an ongoing process um, for you, yeah. um, but also being, you know, full of little speed humps and up and downs and potholes and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a myriad of, of different kind of issues attached to that. So tell me about your recovery process and how you view recovery now for you, yeah. even at this stage in your life. Look, um, recovery is that it's a, it's a journey, not a destination, and um, and for me, recovery's been learning a lot about myself. Um, simple things. It's learning to appreciate um, the, the simple things in life. Having a shower, you know, hot water running down your face, especially if you've been in the jungle for 21 days. You know, it's about um, sipping on a cup of coffee and enjoying that cup of, cup of coffee. For, for me, I got so consumed by, you know, being this, all, you know, this super person that I thought I was that I forgot to enjoy the little things and so recovery for me is about enjoying those little things uh, making the most of of my family um, and, and and look I you know there'll be days when I fall back uh, uh, my face leaks almost every second day it's um, it's incredible but um, I, I think 
as I learn more about myself, I, I learn um, the things that make me well. And I, I follow things that I enjoy, like my music, or I enjoy going for walks in the sun. I enjoy going for walks on the beach. You know, I enjoy those sunrises down at Kira, um, where motives are good. <laughs> yeah, know, enjoying those little things, and and that's just a small part of my recovery. How how I utilise um, that that framework of enjoying those little things to to keep me well. So you've become very transparent about your story. Uh, very open about it and you travel around the country uh, telling people your story that's part of your healing and recovery process uh, but it's also um, opening up that dialogue that you're so passionate about and encouraging people to talk about um, how they are feeling and what it is that they're confronting and what they're going through yeah look I, I love that's my passion is, is talking to people and I've learned I love talking about myself, but do you know what? <laughs> the most important part of a conversation is actually listening to other people. And so the last couple of years, I've learnt the art of being able to listen in a conversation. We, we talk about, you know, we need to, we need to talk and, and all that. Um, well, the most important part of a conversation, in my opinion, is we need to listen because everyone has a unique story that needs to be listened to and so while I love going out sharing my story I actually love afterwards where I get to listen to people and um, and, and sometimes when you share um, your story when people share their stories it's like you know that whole a burden shared is a burden halved that, that's that's such a powerful a powerful simple thing to be able to do and, um, and I love it it's 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 certainly my passion you spent a lot of time working with uh, a very inspirational little um, company, I suppose, uh, Mates in Construction. Yeah. Um, that do an amazing job in the construction industry, recognising that suicide rates um, in construction are higher than other areas um, in society, and it's important that we get the word out. Tell me a little bit about um, Mates in Construction and the work that you do uh, with them. Yeah, look, mates in construction are absolutely phenomenal. They've, they've got um, several different courses that, that they deliver free to the, the construction industry, you know. So, I mean, they're a charity, and yet they, they're constantly, um, you know, um, trying to make a difference um, because they're great believers in blokes, uh, well, great believers in people in the construction industry, um, and, and they're investing these um, connector courses, so... Um, just opening up those conversations, um, you know, just talking about what we've been talking about for the last half an hour or so, um, opening those conversations up and letting blokes know um, that um, that it's okay not to be okay. Letting blokes know, that, um, look, they'd say a constru- construction worker takes their life every second day in Australia. That's just that's just wrong. And so we, we need to open up those communication um, uh, Areas and 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 um, and that's what mates do. And, um, and I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to walk Kokoda, um, um, raising money and awareness for them to keep doing what they're doing. And, um, and my wife did it again this year. Um, and they're just incredibly big-hearted guys that um, are making such a difference. And um, and they are. They're tough guys. They're, they're, well, the tough people that work in the construction industry. They uh, they work hard. They <clears throat> they um, they're big and strong and tough and powerful and 
uh, not really the types that we would uh, expect that you know would express their emotions openly but you get in amongst it and you open up that conversation and um, you got a little song that you uh, you wrote um, how does that how does that go when you, you get in a, into the sight sheds of a of a construction site with all these big tough people and there's Justin and he's got his guitar and he's got his little song and yeah. you're trying to get them to sing along with you. Uh, what happens, mate? Yeah, crackers. I, I mean, these these are blokes that, you know, cross their arms. They say, you're not getting me to sing, champ. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's cool. And my whole my whole theology about my song, so it's called Are You OK? Um, is getting them, just getting people out of their comfort zone. Do you know, we've spent how many years getting into a comfort zone where we don't talk about things well that's that's my goal is see I, I don't know a lot of these people from a bar of soap so I don't really care what they think about me <laughs> and so so I can encourage them and um, and there's always a bit of competitiveness in Australia so I encourage them that the next state did better than them and so <laughs> um, but you know when I get to the end of the song and and you know you get 50 to 75 percent of that room giving it a crack um, I say, you know, that's pretty hard, Jack, to, to, to sing a song in front of your peers where you're trying to be cool and maintain levels of, you know, your own dignity, um, but you did that. And if you can do that, then how much easier would it be to ask your mates that you care about, that you work with side by side, day after day, when you can see they're doing it tough? Are they OK? What does a mate do for another mate who they suspect is... In uh, in crisis, yeah, that's that's good, and that's that's a that's a big question. You know, it, it's it's great to say, "Oh, are you okay? Where to from there?" Um, and that's why I say listening comes into play. Um, but you, you don't have to be a psychologist. You don't have to start trying to fix it. See, I'm a plumber. All I want to do is fix stuff. Um, but I've learned that I don't really have the tools to be able to fix a lot of a lot of these things. But I can I can sure as eggs point someone in the right direction. And so that's my advice is, you know, if, if your mate's not doing okay, yeah, have that conversation with them. There, there might be, just having a yarn with you might be enough. But if it's, if it's really tough, you know, um, point them in the right direction. Say, you know, can I, can I come with you to the docks or can, can I come with you to the boss and we can talk about it. Support your mates. Don't, don't just, you know, don't just say, oh, there, there's the door, mate. This is too much for me. It's, it's about if you, if you care enough to ask the question and you care enough to to be able to point them in the right direction. Um, and that's all it takes. You don't have to be a psychologist, mate. You just have to care. And it's just not just about those that are close to you either, is it? You know, a mate is uh, just looking out for another human being. That's it, mate. We, we've all got value. We've all got someone that cares for us and loves us and wants us to come home in one piece, not only physically but emotionally and mentally. You know, we, we all have value. And I, I don't care what ranking with you the CEO or the bloke that's pushing the broom doesn't matter we're all humans and um, and, and so it's about caring for another human being as you said we we always finish by asking a couple of questions um, of uh, everyone who comes on Rose's radio and the first of those questions is what do we need to change about the way that society deals with suicide we need to accept again that we are human suicide needs to lose that stigma because it's something that affects all community 
And if it's something that affects all community, then we all need to do something about it. And, I, and I, I'm a great believer that if we start talking about it, we, we're not glorifying it by any stretch of the imagination. The more that we talk about it, the more that we reduce that stigma, then the more people will feel okay to say, I'm not okay. There are people out there who are not okay right now who might be listening to this podcast. What's the message that you'd like to put out to those people who could be grappling with this issue right now? Reach out. I made the mistake of not reaching out back there in 2013. And I've, I've paid a heavy price for that. Reach out. Reach out to someone you trust. If you, if you can't do that, reach out to... Uh, there's a number of organisations. I, Off the top of my head, Lifeline is, is one that I really recommend. Um, 131114. Um, reach out. Start talking. Because suicide is a temporary, uh, is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Justin, thanks for spending time with us today. Um, you're a humble guy, but you are also an inspirational guy. You're a good mate um, for lots of people. And uh, you're a tireless worker in the suicide prevention industry. And I know that everyone who knows of your work appreciates everything you do. And we're very grateful that you've been open enough to tell us your story today. We wish you well for the future and uh, encourage you to continue to do everything you can, uh, as we all will, uh, to bring down the rates of suicide in this country. Cheers, mate. Do, do, do. Okay, so you don't, you want to say, this is my dad's song, Hey, Are You Okay? Can you say that? This is my dad's song, Hey, Are You Okay? Okay, is it, will we ready? <laughs> Try it. hang on, let's do it one more time. Pause, stop. This is my dad's song called, Are You Okay? Do, 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 do. Hey, are you okay? Do, 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 do. Hey, are you okay? Nipping at my heels I know how it feels To be down in the junk out of life But you know that it's never too late To ask a good mate Hey, how are you today, my friend? Everybody Do, do, do Do, 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 do Hey, are you okay? Do, do, do Are you okay? Got problems at work and your boss is a jerk. I said, hey, are you okay? Got holes in your shoes and you're living those blues. I said, hey, are you okay? Got dumped by your gal and you ain't doing well. I said, hey, are you okay? Everybody's singing do, 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 do. Hey, are you okay?
In conclusion, we remember those that we've lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We really do need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. And if you or anyone that uh, you know needs support, you should contact people like Lifeline, like the Suicide Callback Service or Kids Helpline who help with children and teenagers from ages 5 to 25 offering phone, web and email counselling and also information for parents. In the event that you'd like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean in conjunction with Suicide Prevention Australia through speaking engagements in your local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean, all one word, .com.au or 1300-411-461. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.